0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info
1: Well, I don't know, I hope you had as restful, as enjoyable as much fun over the fourth of july holiday as we did in my house um it was a great weekend and so wonderful to see that with um the many many vaccinated people out there uh, people were able to gather in uh, ways they haven't for a very long time i hope most of the people who were gathering without masks were vaccinated although that's an ongoing problem especially in a state like georgia where we still have one of the lowest vaccine rates vaccine rates in the country but I want to talk about the good news, which is the 4th of July was a celebration this year for many, many people of freedom from the uh, coronavirus. Um, Now it's time to shake the cobwebs out of our heads and get down to serious business. There is so much to talk about politically, and we will do that with our panel uh, today. I'm very happy to be joined today by Riley Bunch, reporter for GPB News. Riley, did you have a good fourth holiday?
0: I did. It was very relaxing, and it, it was strange to see people without masks running around, but happy to see it.
1: Yeah, well, um, uh, let's just hope, like I said, <laughs> that everybody was taking care of themselves uh, through all of that. Uh, we're very uh, happy to welcome back to the show uh, Charles Bullock, who is the Richard B. Russell director, uh, uh, has holds the position of the Richard B. Russell Chair in Political Science at the University of Georgia. He also is a Professor of Public and International Affairs at the University, and uh, he is one of the most esteemed analysts of politics in the state of Georgia and, and the South, for, and has been for a very long time. Hi, Charles. Thanks for coming back to join us today. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you, Bill. Always enjoy it. Um, we are fi- and we're joined for the first time by the uh, managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Leroy Chapman. Uh, Leroy, because you're on the show for the first time, I-, I would love to have people get to know you just a little bit better. First of all, your appointment as managing editor is relatively recent. It's only been in the last, what, six weeks?
2: Uh, yeah, th- Yes, thereabouts, and I'm pleased to be here today. Thank you.
1: And, and you've been at the AJC for how long?
2: I've been uh, at the AJC for 10 years. Uh, I've been a journalist mm-hmm. uh, since 1994, and I'm a native South Carolinian, uh, but my raising my kids here, they're all Georgians.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Covered politics in South Carolina. You know, going from South Carolina to Georgia, you know, South Carolina politics are obviously a hotbed, just as Georgia's are, Um so, uh, you really uh, uh, were tested in, in the fires of South Carolina politics, I guess.
2: <laughs> oh, absolutely. And uh, there were many political celebrities uh, in South Carolina. And I think for the decade that I've been here, George is catching up.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll tell you what, uh, because we were um, off the air. Uh, for We were off the air yesterday. We did a tape show on Friday. We haven't had a chance yet to talk about the uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision on uh, the Arizona voting case. And, it, and it's an important case for many reasons. And so I want to dig into it with this panel uh, today. Um, let me start by reading something that The New York Times wrote about the decision itself. The Supreme Court on Thursday gave states new latitude to impose restrictions on voting using a ruling in a case from Arizona to signal that challenges to laws being passed by Republican legislators that make it harder for minority groups to vote would face a hostile reception from a majority of justices the decision was among the most consequential in decades on voting rights, and it was the first time the court had considered how a crucial part of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 applies to restrictions that have a particular impact on people of color. Charles, let me start with you on this. Mm -hmm. The Arizona law that went all the way to the court, there were two elements to the law. Um, One of them was a a law that forbade, made it an offense for people to collect ballots uh, from anyone other than a family member or by a caregiver, um, which Republicans like to call ballot harvesting. The court said there's nothing discriminatory about that. And then the other law that they struck down was, or, or they did not strike down um, calls for all votes cast in the wrong precinct to be thrown out entirely, even the portion of a ballot that was a vote for someone who is a statewide candidate um, as opposed to someone who is within the, the uh, district that the person voted uh, incorrectly in. And, and, and Charles, so the court really—this th- is important because the court— said that these are not discriminatory for a variety of reasons. They don't have a particular impact on African-Americans or other minorities, right?
3: Well, that's right, yeah. And what the court said in part is that you know, there, there's a burden involved anytime you go to vote, even if it's just simply uh, you're going to your mailbox and returning a mail-in ballot. And so they were weighing the potential burden with these against what they thought might be a reasonable burden and concluded there wasn't. It's also interesting here, too. Now, while we often refer to the 1965 Voting Rights Act, indeed, that's when it got passed, but this particular provision, Section 2, got added in 1982 with a rewrite at that point. And the court used that 1982 in something of an originalist approach. That is, the court says, well, what were conditions like in 1982? Uh, And they point out that in 1982... um, you know, you didn't have, you know, things like drop boxes and uh only three states allowed no fault absentee voting. And so using that as a baseline again said that, you know, this is not an extraordinary uh burden. And then also what's really important here, and this becomes very important for the Georgia case, and that is uh the court finds that there was no intent to discriminate. Now, if there's an intentional discrimination, then you can pursue that still under Section 2, or you can pursue it under uh, Section 14 – not four, Section, but of the 14th 15th Amendments. What was so important mm-hmm. about Section 2 when it got rewritten in 1982 is it had what was called an effects or results test, so that you did not need to prove that there was an intent to discriminate by the, the jurisdiction. You, know, you could necessarily come in and say that minorities have less of an opportunity to elect their preferred candidates than do whites. And so this uh, this backs off from that a bit. Now, it doesn't mean that some people have said that the Georgia case has no chance for success, but what it does mean, I think, is that to, to win this case, the Department of Justice, DOJ, is going to have to show that in enacting that SB 202, there was an intent to discriminate.
1: Um, Riley, let's keep going on that. Um, Justice Alito, in his writing of the majority uh, ruling, said, where a state provides multiple ways to vote, any burden imposed on voters who choose one of the available options cannot be evaluated without also taking into account the other available means. Um, and, 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 And just to be clear here, Justice Kagan really came after him in her dissent. She wrote, what is tragic here is that the court has... Rewritten in order to weaken a statute that stands as a monument to America's greatness and protects against its basest impulses. She's talking about the Voting Rights Act, particularly in this case, Section 2. What is tragic is that the court has damaged a statute designed to bring about the end of discrimination in voting. Riley?
0: Well, absolutely. I think Dr. Bullock hit it on the head. You know, you're drawing the line between what is a major or a minor inconvenience, right? I think that was part of the majority opinion that really stuck out to me. The activists and voting rights activists in Georgia would say all these little minor conveniences, they add up to major inconveniences that um, disproportionately affects voters of color. And, it, you know, it's also a complicated time right now in terms of Congress and for the protections for voters they're trying to pass that are being stalled with the For the People Act and um, protections to add to the Voting Rights Act. And this, this decision by the Supreme Court, it, it doesn't bode well for the voting rights activists in Georgia right now.
1: Um, and, and for voting rights activists across the country, Leroy, because what the court has done here. You, There have been arguments as to whether those two Arizona voting rights laws—voting laws are, in fact, discriminatory. I mean, e- even the Department of Justice was willing to let them go through the Biden Department of Justice. Uh, so the far greater consequences, Leroy, that people are looking at is what does this mean not only for things like uh, a, a lawsuit in terms of the voting rights uh, bill in Georgia, the election law now in Georgia— but what door does it open for Republican legislatures across the country to impose even more uh, uh, e- egregious legislation that will, could, in fact, uh, reduce the ability of African-Americans and other minorities to vote, Leroy?
2: You're, I think you're muted, Leroy. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I think it, um, will, it's reasonable to say that this will embolden even more rules. Uh, if you think about the argument here in Georgia, it was that uh, that these laws actually did not harm minority voting. And of course, uh, the voting rights advocates wanted the court to to demonstrate that. Well, if you look at this decision uh, showing this, uh, disparate treatment uh, and results that were uneven uh, in regard to race, uh, not only was it not enough, uh, the court didn't seem to sort of indicate what kind of standard would, would there have to be to demonstrate violation of Section 2. So, given that, um, this does present a challenge for the government's own lawsuits, any subsequent challenges uh, by uh, voting rights activists, and also, uh, you know, it affirms in many ways uh, what, um, you know, many of these these, uh, voting, uh, new voting rules that Republicans have pushed, uh, that they were not, as uh, in the public discourse, uh, as as them being disproportionately uh, impacting minorities and keeping them from the polls. So... Uh, I think it's a big PR victory, too, for Republicans, and they'll push forward.
1: Um, Charles, let's be clear on the difference between what uh, between Section 2 and Section 5 in the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the Supreme Court struck down Section 5, which is required preclearance for states that had shown discriminatory patterns in who could and could not vote in the past, Georgia being one of them. Uh, under Section 5, as we know, um, when there was a redistricting map drawn, uh, when polling places were going to be moved in a given uh, county, uh, all of the the um, uh, all of the measures that affected voting in any way had to go to the Department of Justice for pre-clearance. DOJ had to rule that there was no discrimination in the way in which this new, Uh, measure was uh, enacted. So that was stricken. And we know that there are people who believe that that was a terrible blow uh, uh, to uh, voting rights. Section 2 is an uh, after-the-fact measure, right? Section 2 says you can put a law in place, but then a lawsuit can be brought and the courts are completely free to decide that it was discriminatory. Have I got that pretty much right, Charles? Absolutely right. Yeah,
3: yeah. So here the real question is who has the burden of proof? And under Section 5, uh, Georgia's SB 202, the state would have had to have proven to the satisfaction either the Department of Justice or they could have gone and sought a declaratory judgment from the District Court of the District of Columbia. Either way, the state would have had to have proven that each of its provisions there was not intended to discriminate nor would have had a discriminatory effect. Um uh, now under <clears throat> Section 2, or if you bring suit under the 14th, 15th Amendment, the burden of that is going to be on the Department of Justice or whoever brings the suit, if it's a private party, and they're going to have to prove that indeed the activities by the state were discriminatory. There's another important element here, too, is that, yes, Georgia and also Arizona were covered by Section 5. Most states were not, that only 16 states were covered in whole or in part. And so a number of these laws which have been discussed by, say, a state like Tennessee, for example, or Pennsylvania, uh, would not have been subject to preclearance, and therefore the only way to have gone after those, uh, even with Section 5 still in effect, would have been a Section 2 challenge.
1: Yes, and, and so what that means, Leroy, is that um, after after this, the 2013 decision by the court, which basically rendered a Section 5 moot, uh, Advocates for voting rights look to Section 2 for some salvation, but the court has really in this decision narrowed uh, enormously uh, just what conditions need to apply for a Section 2 challenge to be successful, Leroy.
2: Absolutely. And if you go back to think about uh, when preclearance was essentially uh, no longer uh, in effect, uh, states like Georgia and other states of, of the former Confederacy and some other states too that were under this under free clearance. Uh, many voting rights, rights advocates then said that, uh, the, the rights of uh, minorities uh, at the polls would be severely challenged, but this is the one thing they hoped, uh, would, would be they would be able to bring, uh, to the court and seek some remedy that, uh, right now this ruling, uh, and this particular court uh it, it It's a big blow, and they certainly are not encouraged uh, about what's going to happen in the future, given uh the twin sort of uh, hurdles of not only what happened with preclearance, but also what's happened with this ruling
3: really. Well we may see here too okay. bill as the cases go forward uh would be you know how much of an impact now the court points out here that in terms of voting at the wrong precinct, it was only you know one one and a half half a percentage point of the electorate. So what we might see, say, in the Georgia case might be an argument that, well, you know, if such and such were to go into effect, it might impact 5 percent or 10 percent of the electorate. So, you know, as with virtually every Supreme Court decision, it uh, clarifies some elements, but it leaves an awful lot of questions which can still be litigated and therefore attorneys can continue to earn fees.
1: (laughs) Riley.
0: You know, I really think that going back kind of to an earlier point, this is going to open the door for Republican lawmakers in Georgia even more. You know, we saw... The omnibus election bill, it went through the legislature last year so quickly. We did, even the reporters at the Capitol were you know, trying to grab copies of the new ones every day um, to think that they aren't going to you know, come back next session and see what they can get away with you know, with this new opening that this decision um, allowed for. You know, we'd be silly to think that that's not going to happen.
1: You, you know, Riley, the first thing I thought of in terms of Georgia and, and the way the court may have opened the door— for uh, future legislation here. First thing I thought about was uh, to uh, disallow Sunday voting. I mean, that was, of course, a part of the effort that Georgia legislators, who wanted uh, the, uh, new laws put in place, uh, that, was, that was a very big part of what they had hoped to accomplish. They decided to back away from that. Maybe part—and I, I, I can't predict, and I don't know that you know some of the thinking behind that, Riley, but it did seem so blatantly— <laughs> aimed at black voters who voted after church that perhaps they didn't like the impression it created at the same time it looks like the court has opened the door for them to pass that if they want and 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 it could be considered legal
0: well it's absolutely strange because i feel like they pushed some provisions very hard that did not give you know the good pr so the water in line right that gave Democrats an absolute opening to hit them back and say that this um, law was absolutely discriminatory. But they did back off on the Sunday voting, right, that they pushed really, really hard in the beginning. Um, So it will be interesting to see if they think bringing that back would do more good than damage. Um, We will have to see.
1: Um, Leroy and Charles, I want to go back in time for a moment in terms of, of this, because we, have to, we can go back to 1965 when the Voting Rights Act, which Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson, a Southerner, a Texan, uh, worked so hard to push through Congress um, despite opposition from people like Senator, Georgia Senator Richard B. Russell and others who uh, were, were in the South who really opposed it. Richard Russell uh, thought that poll text should uh, continue and could, should be lawful, for example. Um, but Johnson made this after passing the Civil Rights Act of 64, his next big move in terms of protecting the rights of all Americans. And I just want to listen. He gave a speech before a joint session of Congress in March of 1965. We'd already seen the beatings <coughs> around the Mon- uh, Mon- Selma to Montgomery, uh, March, We'd seen the murder of uh, in the late 64 of the three uh, civil rights workers, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman. And this was Lyndon Johnson's effort to say, we can't allow this to continue. People are putting their lives on the line to give black people in the South the right to vote. Here's just a little of what he told Congress that night.
3: Many of the issues of civil rights are very complex and most difficult. But about this, there can and should be no argument. Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. There is no reason which can excuse
1: the denial of that right. Leroy, it was one of the great triumphs of Lyndon Johnson's tenure as president.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And when you hear that, what you hear is that there's a moral imperative there, right? And so when you think about what we're discussing now, uh, it's going to be interesting, too, because there is um, some of the same language being used by proponents of voting rights, that this is a moral imperative. But what we're seeing now is that in light of this court ruling, uh, is it that, uh, that, that there is an argument? So the president said, in those words long ago, that there should not be an argument. Well, where we are today, uh, there is an argument. And I think that what the uh, ruling did is it did not provide uh, as much clarity for the folks who felt like it's a moral imperative. And you think about things like big business. So this is something at the AJC we're gonna now um, take a look at because big business did respond to say that it is a moral imperative, that it is absolutely anti-American, to deny anyone uh, their right to the franchise, right? But now we've got the Supreme Court ruling, which says, well, some of these rules uh, were not unconstitutional. So given that, uh, there is less clarity. Um, But, uh, you know, if you are here in uh, the South, I'm a Southerner, um, it's hard to walk away from our history. And some of the folks who were listening to this on the radio long ago, they're still alive and they still understand, too, and they still have a point of view here where this is all a moral imperative. So it's going to be interesting to watch.
3: Yeah, um, several things here, Bill. Uh, you mentioned, interestingly enough, the poll tax. And actually, the Voting Rights Act did not ban the poll tax. And it's now thought probably it didn't because Texas was one of the few four, four last states that still had a poll tax. And so that was not covered among the <laughs> tests and devices. You know, Georgia had gotten rid of the poll tax back in 1945. But even without a poll tax, the estimates are that in 1965, less than one in four black voting age citizens of Georgia was registered to vote. So that shows kind of how little participation was being permitted in Georgia, although we didn't have a poll tax. We did have a literacy test at that point. And then, of course, the other part was just physical intimidation, which was so important, which is a possible problem. Uh, and what we would seen, yeah, the, the, the mm-hmm. emphasis of that original act in 65 was essentially to strike down the barriers to registration, like the literacy test, and then to guarantee that a person who managed to get registered could go indeed and cast a ballot. And so for that purpose, federal officials could be sent into individual counties across the South where there were problems to register voters if the local registrar would not do it. And you could also send in, they being the the, uh, attorney general, could send in, uh, monitors to look at an election and see what's happening at that election. And then in 1969, Supreme Court case said, we're going to interpret this legislation very, very broadly. And so it's at that point that anything which in any way touched upon elections uh, suddenly becomes under coverage. And so that's what expanded to cover acts like uh, like redistricting or moving a precinct or things like this. And so uh, it grows, the legislation itself grows very dramatically beyond its initial purposes, and its initial purposes were significant and or revolutionary, one might almost say.
1: Um, Charles, Richard Russell had had, uh, filibustered the 64 Civil Rights Act and had his block of southern uh, senators who backed him on that. I don't recall whether, in fact, he also launched a filibuster against the Voting Rights Act or not. Or by that time, had Lyndon Johnson just beaten him down to the point he just realized he wasn't going to win against LBJ?
3: Yeah, he really participated very little in the 65 uh, debate in the Senate. In 64, you're right. He led the filibuster. He organized it uh, and carried it out. It was the longest filibuster in American history. But by 65, his emphysema was getting worse, and he was in and out of a hospital. And so the Southern forces at that point were led by his chief lieutenant, John Stennis, a senator from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And Russell, yeah, he did vote on the, against the legislation, but he was really not much of a player in 65.
1: Okay, thanks. I, I wondered about that because he doesn't show up the way he did right. in 64, if you go back and look at the history. Uh, before we get to a break, Riley, I want to read you— just one line from the uh, the case from Michael Carvin, who was the attorney who represented uh, Arizona in defending the law at the Supreme Court. And here's what he said. He, he, as a representative of the Republican Party of Arizona, he said that the new law, quote, um, it, or, I'm sorry, let me go back. If the new law is overturned, it, quote, puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game, and every extra vote they get through un- unlawful interpretations of Section 2 hurts us. It's the difference between winning an election 50 to 49 and losing. Now, Riley, he can frame it in the context of of an illegal uh, interpretation of a law, but it's <laughs> I don't know how they could have advertised much more strongly the fact that they see their laws as being helpful to Republicans and hurtful to Democrats because it will suppress the minority vote.
0: Well, absolutely. I don't really, I don't know how you, you know, come back and justify that statement to say anything other than that, right? And we know that these close elections, like the ones we're seeing in Georgia right now, they come down to... A handful of votes, right? And and the Republicans know that, and they know that there's this increasing Democratic enthusiasm in the South and in places where the Republican-held legislatures are trying to impose greater restrictions, right? It is the political game that we're seeing played out in the courts, and we're seeing played with people's votes.
2: (laughs) Right? Yeah, so um, here's the number here. So the wrong precinct voting uh, that was part of this uh, Arizona ruling, Mm -hmm. uh, there were 3,300 wrong precinct votes in Georgia last election cycle. Uh, Two-thirds of those votes were Democratic votes. So it is about vote counting. It is about uh, votes in in tightly contested races. And you think about 3,300 votes being disallowed out of millions being cast. But of course, what we saw is that the presidential election was decided by only 12,000 votes. So when you think about these numbers, even these small numbers proportionally, they certainly matter. So uh, absolutely, uh, I think um, you know she's right in saying that uh, Republicans are mindful of this. And many of, if, if on the margins, uh, small numbers are, are disallowed, well, you may only need small numbers to either call a race into question or to turn a race.
1: Charles, why don't you weigh in on that before we get to our break?
3: Okay, yeah. Yeah, this is an issue the court has wrestled with, at least since the Cromarty case in 2000, and that is, particularly here in the South, how do you separate out you know, the impact partisan and the racial impact? And part of it, of course, goes back to you know, what did the legislators say when they were enacting the legislation? Uh, but this this decision we're talking about here, uh, Brunovich, uh, you know, in it the Justice Alito says, you know, that you know simply because something may have a partisan impact, it doesn't necessarily mean it has a racial impact. But I say this is this is difficult because again the court back in Cromberdy acknowledged that, yeah, if you're looking at a heavily democratic precinct, you're probably also looking at a very heavily minority precinct. And so the two are very much commingled.
1: All right. Um this is going to continue to resonate as the Georgia election lawsuits move forward. We've got eight of them now. And, of course, the biggest player, the bigfoot in, in all of them, is the United States Department of Justice, which a week or so ago filed suit claiming that the new law, SB 202, was discriminatory. We will watch how it proceeds in the lower courts. And it'll be interesting to see how lower court judges may adjust their thinking as they hear these cases in because yeah. of what they've now learned from the U.S. Supreme Court about what, what, this, what the Supreme Court is likely to do uh, when a case reaches them. So this is going to be a fascinating story with a big impact right here in Georgia. Let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show, and we will come back in just a moment with more on Political Rewind. <laughs> We're back with uh, managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Leroy Chapman, uh, Charles Bullock, professor of political science at the University of Georgia, and Riley Bunch, a reporter for GPB News. Uh, Riley, uh, people who were listening to the uh, NPR newscast right before we came on the air heard big news. We've been talking about this story on our air for some time now, um, and this is such a terrible, terrible look for the University of North Carolina. Nicole Hannah-Jones, Pulitzer Prize winner for the 1619 Project um, and a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, was going to go teach at UNC her alma mater. She went through every hoop that was required of her to gain tenure. The faculty supported it. So did um, others in the university community. But the board of trustees denied it. They didn't like the politics of the 1619 Project. Last week, they changed their, they reversed themselves. They recognized what a terrible blunder they'd made. And they said they would grant her tenure this morning. Nicole Hannah-Jones says, I won't go to UNC, even though they're giving me tenure. And she said she's going to go to Howard. And she said this. This is my alma mater referring to UNC. I love the university. The university has given me a lot. I wanted to give back. It was embarrassing to be the first person to be denied tenure. It was embarrassing and I didn't want this to become a public scandal. I didn't want to drag my university through the pages of newspapers because I was the first and only black person in that position to be denied tenure. But then she said, it is not my job to heal the University of North Carolina. This is a job of the people in power who created this situation in the first place. Riley?
0: Well, I mean, absolutely good for her. You know, I watched a clip with Gail King. This morning, and um, she it was very composed, very well spoken about her thoughts, um, and a huge loss for UNC. It really was. Um, Hannah Jones has absolutely uh, changed the journalism industry, right? But what also a good example of the racial discrimination that still exists in A, the journalism industry, and B, at the university level. Um, so, you know, her, her announcement that she wasn't going to go there because she was a first black woman offered this position that did not. Um, received tenure, you know, that it was disappointing to watch this entire thing unfold um, with the university, absolutely disappointed with the board, but um, good, good for her, uh, you know, standing up and taking her talents elsewhere where they'll, they'll be recognized and deserved.
1: Leroy, um, there were certainly people, historians, who didn't agree with everything that the 1619 Project had to say about uh, slavery being at the heart of the American, the so-called American experiment of democracy, who felt there were places in there that needed more refinement or were incorrect, but the overall point of the 1619 project to think about the history of African Americans and what 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 part they played in uh, developing this country um, was terribly important and um and this whole thing gets caught up in politics because the previous president of the United States condemned it, and uh, Republicans took up that same rallying cry, and apparently the trustee who was most upset about Nicole Hannah-Jones getting tenure was a Trump supporter.
2: Yeah, so po- it, it's just emblematic of our politics today. Uh, when you think about the University of North Carolina and their charge, or any any big public university like that, and of course... Uh, you know, This is uh, you know, one of our uh, you know, more elite public universities uh, in the country, the University of North Carolina is. And so given that, um, their, their charge, uh, when you think about uh, the talent that uh, that kind of institution is able to attract, uh, certainly the academic freedom that uh, should be a hallmark of, of the University of North Carolina. I mean, that project uh, did not have to be perfect in order to, to, to uh, spark the kind of discussion that it did. And so this is uh, the upheaval based upon uh, the reactions of, of, of a few uh, that whipped into a fervor, and it became a threat. And when it got to that point, um, it, uh, it really shut down what uh, I think otherwise University of North Carolina or, or, or any other uh, would, would say that uh, someone of that accomplishment um, you know, would be welcome, and it would not be a question. And so uh, it does uh, certainly make the University of North Carolina uh, I think they had to do this over again. Uh, they probably want to avoid this because it certainly does make them and not Hannah Jones look bad. Yeah,
3: yeah there's a. You know, we, we've often tried to fence out politics from from the university university politics, and when politics uh, kind of weighs into the academic growth, uh, it often is not. A good, good, good event. And I'm thinking all the way back, and this would be back 70 years ago, where politics very much interceded in the activities of the university system of Georgia, and again it involved race, it involved a teaching experiment, uh, and the governor of Georgia at that point weighed in, packed uh, the the board of regents, fired uh, the president of what was then Georgia State Teachers College, uh, fired the dean of UGA's. Uh, College of Education, and as a result, the entire university system of Georgia lost its accreditation. Mm. Uh, So yeah, when politics comes in, you know, it's one, it's good to have it in a classroom to debate even sides. And what I love to have in a class when I'm teaching, it would be, you know, a leader of the college Republicans and a leader of the young Democrats. And a number of my classes, they've sat side by side. And it's been great because one of them could issue commentary and I could then turn to the other one saying, you know, what does your side have to say about this? (laughs) So we like to think of academia as being a place where we, we have, you know, a free exchange of ideas. And yeah, if a you know, an idea is uh, you know, not, not ideal, then that's fine. You know, you, you talk about it, you debate it, you point out the strengths and weaknesses, and, you know, the students come out better informed, and also they learn to kind of develop their own reasoning processes and their ability to articulate the ideas that support those reasoning processes. At least that's what we hope, hope to achieve within our classrooms.
2: So I was at a... Um Uh, On a panel with uh, Henry Louis Gates, this was a few years ago, Uh, and he was uh, talking about, uh, you know, there's no idea that's so repugnant that you can't discuss. And he was talking about academic freedom, but what he was talking about at the time was the uh, Confederate monuments that that at the time were being rethought and some were being taken down, taken down. And so, uh, you know, as an academic, uh, he certainly rang the bell for, a- for academic freedom and, and, and to be able to discuss ideas. So, you know, this really is the antithesis of what that is. And so I think the University of North Carolina has some repairing to do with, this alum- with its alums and the public.
1: All right. Um, thank you all for uh, uh, taking that issue on, which just broke a little bit before we went on the air. I'm, I'm glad that you were able to uh, analyze it the way you did. Um, you know, it's interesting that you just uh, uh, made the point, Leroy, that, that, that he had said in the, in the panel, Henry Louis Gates, you know, there's no idea that's too repugnant to discuss. And that really leads us to our next conversation. You know, we have—so Leroy and Riley and I are all three journalists. Charles, of course, is, like I've said many times, the senior uh, political analyst in our state. Uh, but I want his opinion on this, too— We have wrestled, I think, all of us off and on with how to deal with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. How much oxygen should we give the outrageous activities, statements they make? Um, And for the most part, we have come down on the side of the fact that people need to understand uh, what she is preaching to uh, her own constituents who continue to support her, and now to the rest of the country— so, with that in mind, I do want to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene's appearance with Donald Trump at his rally in Ohio this past weekend. Um, he has now elevated her to the national stage. I'm going to play two sound bites uh, from what she had to say. She gave about a 12 minute speech. The first one's a little bit longer, but I want to give you a sense of just all the targets that she took on in front of an enthusiastic crowd. Let's listen.
4: Now, I always check when I go speak to a crowd because I want to make sure I'm talking to smart people. Let me ask you all one question. Who's your president? President Trump is my president, too. As a matter of fact, he's the greatest president this country has ever had. And he should be our president right now. But the dirty, rotten Democrats stole the election. Now, let me give you just a few reasons why the D.C. swamp hates me so much. Because I want to impeach Joe Biden. And I want to expel Maxine Waters. And I want to fire Dr. Anthony Fauci. You know, there's a lot of people that need to be fired. Did you hear that, Tony? They want you locked up. Now Biden has weaponized the DOJ. Unbelievable. So he can go after Trump supporters. While at the same time ignoring Antifa BLM domestic terrorists. Does that make any sense? No. They're also putting trans men in girls' and women's sports.
1: All right, so we're gonna talk about that in a minute. But before we do, she then went on to talk about Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. And this is a much shorter soundbite. Just listen to what she had to say about her.
4: The Democrats are now controlled by the jihad squad, led by AOC, the little communist from New York City. That's right. Yeah, lock her up, too. That's a good idea. She's not an American. She really doesn't embrace our American ways.
1: Okay, um, here's what we're going to do. I, I, let's get a break out of the way. You, we've now per- set the, the uh, stage for a conversation about the implications of all of this in the political cycle as it moves forward toward 2022. You're listening to Political. Rewind the panel away in after these messages. <music> Leroy Chapman, the uh, racist... Uh, uh, kind of implications of some of what Marjorie Sutter Greene said in those comments is hard to avoid.
2: It is. Um, And what we've now learned about uh, Congressman Greene is that um, there is really no downside or penalty for her behaving this way. Uh, In fact, uh, she winds up getting rewarded in fundraising. Uh, We see that there's a reward in her proximity to former President Trump um, and her continued sort of visibility among those on the political fringe who uh, one never seemed to tire and two uh, seemed lower. Uh, so she gives voice to those folks. Uh, so what it does for us as a newspaper is that it presents a challenge. Uh, we have to, you know, be very explanatory and we have to provide context and we have to let our readers know why we are uh, writing about uh, the next shocking thing she says, because two seconds later, something else shocking will come. So it's it's not necessarily news that she says something that's shocking. So uh, we have to uh, weigh uh, each of these things. Uh, is this having impact on a party, on the business of the United States Senate, on a district, et cetera? And so we, we do that. But um, again, no downside for her to behave in this way.
0: You know, it's it's such a hard conversation that I feel like is revisited every day in newsrooms right now, right? You know, it's started with how do we cover Trump. Now it's how do we cover characters like Marjorie Taylor Green. How do we cover characters like Rudy Giuliani? That was a question in my newsroom last week when he came um, to endorse Vernon Jones, right? And, and you, you think about how um, extreme. Things have gotten. I think when you really sit back and you look at the rallies, I think about her rally with um, Representative Matt Gates in Dalton, right? You know, the then char- the political piece you sent us to read, the characters have gotten more outlandish, right? The rhetoric has gotten more outlandish. How, how do you deal with that? But people need to know we are, you know, the what that people say about journalism, the first record of history, right? They need to know what's being said. Um, and and Leroy is absolutely right. Marjorie Taylor Greene has faced virtually abs- no consequences for her rhetoric. I can't imagine it's not going to continue.
1: So, Charles, I, I I really appreciate hearing two journalists talk about their way, the decisions that they weigh in terms of how you cover this. But I don't want it to eclipse the fact that her comments were so egregiously offensive. And it strikes me, Charles, that one way she would not, at least from among in, in many news organizations, get the attention she's getting now is if the Republican Party would condemn What she is saying, if Kevin McCarthy and other Republican leaders in the U.S. House would say she is an outlier, she is not one of us. But as long as they continue to uh, allow her uh, uh, free reign, it it is a big news story, Charles. Well, it is,
3: yeah. And in the past, the uh, Republican Party has at times stepped up and said, you know, although this person claims to be one of us, we do not consider him to be so. And here I'm thinking all the way back to David Duke. Who was also found to be a reprehensible individual. Uh, and the Republican Party, including the President of the United States at that time, who was George W. w. H. Bush, said, uh, you know, he's, he claims to be a Republican. We don't accept him. And in that gubernatorial contest in Louisiana, uh, every Republican from the president on down said, "You know, go and vote for the Democrat." Now, <laughs> that did not keep an awful lot of people from voting for for David Duke, who got uh, you know 40 some odd plus percent of the vote. Uh, what I think is really t- concerning, and should be concerning, is that the success which she has had. You know, not only did she get invited, you know, to Trump rallies, which virtually every Republican candidate in the country right now would like to do. But look at the amount of money she has raised. I mean, she is mm-hmm. like the third leading fundraiser in in Congress, and here she is just a freshman you who know, hasn't been there for six months. I can easily imagine that uh, a number of aspiring politicians would look at that and say, hmm, yeah, I'd like to have that kind of attention. I'd like to have that kind of fundraising so that I could weigh in on other contests. Yeah, I'm going to model myself after her because – you know, in person's eyes, she is succeeding.
1: Yeah, Riley. There are obviously she won the 14th district by huge numbers. Um, look, we. Our show is broadcast across the state of Georgia, and certainly there are people in the 14th District who listen to it. And we know that there are good people in the 14th District, just as there are across the state. We also know there are conservative people in the 14th District who may have had a lot about President Trump's uh, agenda that they supported. But I find it hard to imagine that they embrace the kind of rhetoric, the kind of um, t- horrific messaging that she puts out. I find it hard to imagine th- that that's a popular uh, uh, form of attack up there among her constituents.
0: Well, I think we have to you know, remember that the, the voters, the voting base that are showing up at these rallies, Um, are not necessarily all the conserved voting base in the 14th district, right? You know, that was a huge question when Marjorie Taylor Greene started. um, Videos resurfacing of her past comments is how did people vote for her and not know that she had said these things right you know there were a lot of people in the 14th district that voted for her after they saw her on the campaign trail in the 14th district they didn't know about her past you know her rhetoric wasn't as extreme as it is now you know and and it really is a question of do you support president trump or do you not because that is the deciding factor for a lot of the conservatives in district 14.
1: Leroy what do you think about that
2: yeah, I think, I think Riley's right. But, but I think there is a coarsening of our politics. Uh, I think that there are conservatives who, uh, you know, are, are very uncomfortable with that, but you know, are there numbers enough in a district like that? And so there are people who, because of the coarsening of our, of our politics, sometimes they, they write this off as theater, uh, as so long as they speak to the other things that they value. And some of that stuff, um, you know, are things like, um, You know, the economic concerns and some of those anxieties and fears, but certainly some of the social things. If you look at the things that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene picked out um, around comments that may may be racially insensitive. She also talked about things like uh, transgender uh, women in in women's uh, sports and and bathrooms, things like that, that uh, in in a conservative district, people will wholeheartedly agree with. So she Mm -hmm. picked enough Mm -hmm. of those things to to garner that kind of support.
1: Charles, what, what impact it, it is, uh her ongoing? And she's going to be at all the rallies. She said she's traveling around the country <laughs> with Trump. Is she going to have any impact on how uh, voters make their choices about Republican candidates, whether it's in the primaries or in the fall elections of 2022?
3: Yes, she probably will. Yeah, I mean, um, if she gets invited and appears on these rallies, uh at least in the mind of the the former president, you know, she is an asset. She helps uh maybe draw the crowds or at least fires up the crowds. So uh yeah, the, the assumption is this that uh she is speaking to a share of the Republican base, that she will help mobilize them as we go into the twenty twenty two election cycle, with both the US House and the Senate very much in play. So yeah, she does have a following. Uh, we don't know exactly how big it is across the nation, but it's not just something related, you know, restricted to the 14th district of Georgia.
1: But Republicans <laughs> don't have to condemn her, uh, some of her harshest rhetoric, in order to continue to curry favor with with their with their base or beyond that in a general election is what you're saying.
3: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. We are completely out of time. <laughs> Charles Bullock's yeah, gets the last word <laughs> of, of the show. What a, what a great uh, conversation we had today. Leroy Chapman, thanks for coming on. We're glad to have you in your first appearance on Political Rewind. I hope you'll come back again. Riley Bunch, you as well, and Charles Bullock, uh, such a pleasure to have you on the show with us. Uh, We didn't get to a lot of the topics I'd hoped we could, so we got more that we'll take on tomorrow, including a new report from the USDA, which shows just how African-American farmers have in fact been discriminated against in terms of trying to get help from the federal government uh, to keep their farms thriving. We'll take on all of that and a lot more tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask in the right situations. Get a vaccine if you don't have it now, and uh, maybe we'll all be able to go out and be completely free before long. Take care, everybody. See you tomorrow.